What's good, bro? What's pop, Swan? You check. Demi, a ver, que lo que? What's up, Mike? What it do, baby? What's up, Guan, my youth? Hey, y'all. Hey, bye, you good? Wagwan. Yeah, what's good, yo? Yo, what's good? Hey, my guy, how you doing? What the fuck is that? What's up, guy? What's up? Hey, friend. Where's it seen? Yo. Sanu Yage. What it do, baby? Sak Pase. Yo, what's good? What it guan? Yo, what's good? What's up, Joe? What's your own? Yo. Hello, okay. Guess up by me, gente. Talk to me nice. Hey, boo. Welcome to the Black Language Podcast, where we talk about our people and our language, and we're talking black as anything said by a black person. I'm your host, Anansa, and a highlight for me these past two weeks has been everyone who texted me or DM me, letting me know that they say I so boom. It reminds me of when I was studying in school, and the more I studied, the less I feel like I could participate in actual conversations because I would be paying attention to everything else but the conversation. So if that week in class we talked about how people end conversations, all of a sudden I'm out here testing conversation closers to see which is more effective. Or if my friends describe the quantity of something by saying a few, next thing I'm going to do is ask them what they think the difference is between a few and some. It got to the point where I would sometimes apologize to people because I would randomly mention something that they did linguistically that stood out to me. And so I figured I should probably stop doing that and start having those conversations here. So let's get into it. Rachel Gentel, at the age of 19, served as a witness in the trial of George Zimmerman in 2013. George Zimmerman was on trial for the murder of Trayvon Martin, a young, beautiful, black, 17-year-old high school student. George Zimmerman was eventually acquitted. Rachel Gentel was the friend of Trayvon and was on the phone with him as the incident occurred. This made her a star witness in the trial. So I bring up Rachel Gentel because as a 19-year-old young black Haitian girl from Florida, her English was scrutinized and completely disrespected by those in the courtroom, the media, and society. Her personhood was picked apart on national television, and we saw yet again how America reminds young black girls that we are disposable and invisible. At the time, there were think pieces written on her testimony, but two linguists in particular, Sharice King and John Rickford, would eventually publish a dope paper in 2016 entitled Language and Linguistics on Trial, hearing Rachel Gentel and other vernacular speakers in the courtroom and beyond. Rachel Gentel had to deal with people calling her dumb, ignorant, inarticulate, saying that she can't form sentences. I mean, there were just some really, really nasty comments alluding to her socioeconomic status and questioning her intellect. She was seen as not credible and hard to understand by jurors. And this isn't the first time that this happened. 
In the paper, Rickford and King discuss other instances where people who speak marginalized variations of English, or in other words, people who don't speak standardized English, are misunderstood and face prejudice in courtrooms. Also in this paper, Rickford and King discuss how she actually was speaking Ebonics with no problem, and also had in some, some influence from varieties of Caribbean English. They outlined the various rules in the syntax, phonetics and phonology, and lexicon that Rachel uses, and how the implicit biases of the jurors and their unfamiliarity with her way of speaking clouded their judgment of Rachel's testimony, such that her testimony was disregarded, even though she said that Trayvon Martin was running away from George Zimmerman when the dominant narrative at the time was that Trayvon was the aggressor. There's even a CNN video on their official YouTube account from June 27th, 2013, entitled, Does Rachel Jantel's Body Language Speak Volumes? Where the reporters criticize her body posture and say that Rachel mumbled and grumbled. They even talk about her neck rolls. Like, it really just made me sick. Like, the whole video just felt mad racist. And what infuriates me most is that when I watch the clips from the testimony, I can understand her fine. You feel me? So it's like, who was up in that courtroom if not racist white people? There wasn't no black people on the jury. And I know all skin folk ain't kin folk, but I just feel like the chances of her being understood, shown empathy and grace might be higher with a black person. But still, there was a group of white jurors who misunderstood her and still made a decision. Like, that sounds illegal to me. Like, can we sue the jurors who came out afterwards and said that they couldn't understand her? Like, how is it appropriate that you make a jury decision, but you can't even understand the star witness? It's important to note that what people say is important and how they say it is important. And I would argue that who they are is just as important. I don't believe that you can separate what is said from the speaker. So basically, the United States is just racist because you're telling me that in 2013, after all this research we have about Ebonics, which is the most studied variation of American English, that no one thought to be like, yo, prosecution, you might want to bring in a linguist or look at some research because they're going to try to discredit your witness because of how she speaks. But no, instead, everyone left Rachel Jantel out to dry. Next, I would like to talk about Danielle Bergoli, who went on Dr. Phil in 2016 at the age of 13 because of violent domestic disputes with her mother. Danielle was made famous during this segment with memes and clips going viral of her saying, catch me outside, how about that? I'd also like to note that the name of this Dr. Phil segment that she was on was called, quote, I want to give up my car stealing, knife wielding, twerking, 13-year-old daughter who tried to frame me for a crime, end quote. During her segment, Danielle utilizes various features of African-American language, and at one point, Dr. Phil repeats back to her what she said and asks if she went on to the fifth grade. Also during this segment, she talks about stealing cars, she threatens her mother, and describes their previous violent interactions. And there's video footage of their previous violent interactions. Now, Danielle spent some time as a viral sensation with the viral catchphrase and fast forward a year later and her name is now Bad Baby and she's a rapper. 
Bad Baby became the youngest female rapper to appear on the Billboard Hot 100. Then she was signed to a multi-album contract with Atlantic Records. She recorded another single that appeared in the Billboard Hot 100. She received a gold certification from the Recording Industry Association of America. She also has a reality show that premiered in 2019 on Snapchat and received over 10 million unique viewers. She was set to go on tour in 2020, but it was delayed because of COVID-19. And according to TMZ, her representatives say that she was slated to make over $10 million in 2019. Y'all, this white girl went on TV, used features of African-American language, cursed out the audience, and got famous and rich. I just find it funny how Rachel Gentile is punished for her use of African-American language while Bad Baby is celebrated and rewarded for it. It really begs the question of who in the United States is given grace and empathy. And for me, their stories are added to the long history of the U.S. coming to the rescue of white women and girls and villainizing black women and girls. I'd be curious to know how many white women saw the treatment of Rachel Gentile as a feminist issue. And so I wanted to start this conversation by recalling the story of these two girls because I think it says a lot about who gets to use African-American language. I think highlighting the contrast between the stories of these two girls is exactly what we mean when we say that America loves black culture but don't love black people. It feels like the biggest contradiction that mainstream American English constantly takes from Ebonics, and yet Black people are still criticized for our use of Ebonics, among other things. For me, and I'm sure others, this is why the erasure of Black people from African American language is such an issue. We create culture. We add to the evolution of language, and this is not something that just started happening when the internet became available. As a black woman, I know white America has taken our musics, foods, and fashions, and then lied about it afterwards. And now that I say this, I'm reminded of those random food videos that I've seen on the internet uh, within the past couple years of white millennial kids moving into black and brown communities and quote-unquote discovering different foods. It was so real, I had to correct my teacher when I studied abroad in Brazil. So in undergrad, I went and studied in Rio de Janeiro, and I opted to take the music course. And so when we were in the section of the course talking about talking about bossa nova music, and my instructor described this music as being of the white, middle, and upper class, I questioned that. And I will not forget what I said. I was like, you know how society will take something from Black people and claim it as their own? Is that what happened to bossa nova music or was it always a part of the white middle upper class? And the teacher was confused. But for me, we had just finished talking about samba music and how it was taken from black people and used to paint Brazil as some racial harmonious country, which it's not. So, boom, my teacher said that this is a music more associated with white Brazil, similar to how rock and roll and countries associated with white Americans. When he said that, I was like, what? So, of course, though, names like Rosetta Thorpe, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard all slipped my mind. And so I responded saying how rock and roll and country was stolen from black people and how our blues music and gospel led to those genres and that Elvis and the Rolling Stones in them would just take songs from black people and re-record them. 
So my teacher gave me some pushback saying that he studied in the U.S., you know, da, da, da. And of course, I'm out here on this limb by myself because everyone is just looking at me. So thankfully, this white kid in my class who was into rock supported everything I said, dropped some names, and we moved on. So I, I, I say all this to say, like, all of these things that I've shared so far came up for me because... Twitter was in shambles over the past two weeks. And I know that the world exists outside of Twitter and TikTok, but y'all, from what I've seen this past week, people have really been on 10 on these platforms talking about Eblonics and Black language appropriation. And I always knew I was going to do various episodes about language justice, language discrimination, language appropriation, but I did not think it would happen like this. Did y'all know that every day members of K-pop Twitter will go on Twitter and ask if certain terms are a part of AAVE, African-American Vernacular English. If you search, quote, AAVE, end quote, on Twitter, you'll see, like, you'll see these threads and it's mind-blowing. And it's not just K-pop Twitter, though K-pop Twitter does receive a fair amount of attention for language appropriation. It's so real that as of July, there was an account on Twitter called K-pop AAVE Struggle Tweets. On this page, the owner posts screenshots of members of K-pop Twitter misusing Ebonics. And it's not just K-pop Twitter. I mean, in general, if you just search AAVE on Twitter, you'll see people asking if they're racist for saying y'all or if they're racist for saying deadass or asking which terms are part of AAVE or not. And I've also seen two Google Docs floating around. One is actually pretty constructive and talks about alternatives to language appropriation and harmful language. And the other is a list of AAVE that someone monitors and adds terms to. And I've seen those lists, you know, circulate. And then other people have kind of just made their own lists, like in the notes app and just posted screenshots of different terms, phrases in, um, in AAVE. And so while you're searching through the AAVE feed on Twitter, you'll see people saying that they checked the list when talking about if certain terms are AAVE or not. And additionally, on TikTok, the youth have been creating educational videos about what African-American language is. And for me, it's actually kind of creepy to know that there's people out there dissecting what you do and watching your every move to replicate it. And again, I'm just baffled at how commonly used Ebonics is among non-Black people and how people pay such close attention to non-Black usage of it. And yet, Black people's social conditions have not improved. This tells me again that mainstream America is obsessed with Black culture and doesn't actually care about Black people. And for me, I feel like part of the issue is that white America is so used to coming across different things and completely acting like they discovered it or created it, like this country. So aside from general or more quieter conversations about African-American language on Twitter and TikTok, what actually sparked the past few weeks of Twitter and TikTok being bombarded with content about Ebonics was the fact that back at the end of July, someone tweeted claiming that AAVE is stan language. So if you don't know, stands are basically like super obsessive fans of celebrities. And stan Twitter is definitely a thing. And it's composed of people of different races obsessing about their favorite celebrities. It's commonly associated with like Gen Z and younger millennials, though 
I'm not sure like how true it is that there are not older stands. And so this isn't the first time that someone has called Ebonics something that it's not. Previously, people had said that Ebonics is internet language, social media language, and Twitter language, and it's none of those things. But Black people innovate culture, and cultural innovation takes place on the internet and social media. And so when people think they're speaking internet language or stand language, more often they're not, they're using features of African American language. And what is cool to see is that there is some awareness um, from outsiders wanting to show like some level of appreciation for black culture and, you know, black people reclaiming our, our, and black people reclaiming our language practices. But my issue with some of these conversations though is that they simplify what African American language is. Many people try to box AAVE in and you just can't do it because the minute you do, it's going to change on you. Also, these conversations tend to place an emphasis on vocabulary, more specifically slang, and AAVE is more than slang. Now, slang is a necessary part of any language as a subset of vocabulary that is often associated with informal settings and it changes constantly. And it is, and it is, of course, a beautiful aspect of any language. And slang is just a piece of African-American language. And I think this is why non-Black people just can't get it right. They underestimate the complexity of Ebonics. And I'm not saying that Ebonics is only valid because it's complex. But I have heard people using features of African-American language from different regions of the United States. So they'll use like Chicago slang with vowels from D.C. And I'm just like, you sound weird. But of course, racism in the U.S. doesn't allow them to see the variation among Black English in the States or the fact that you just can't string together a bunch of slang terminology that you heard a Black person say. You know, when I was in elementary school, I did not know what a part of speech was. And if you still don't know, a part of speech kind of basically tells you if the word is a noun, verb, adjective, and so on. And since I didn't know what it was, I would never write down the part of speech when I was copying my vocabulary words because I felt like it was just like a waste of time and space. It wasn't until 11th grade that I realized that the part of speech is helpful because if you don't know a word, it tells you how you can use the word. Mainstream America does not know how part of speech works in uh, AAVE, and we will surely not write the dictionary for them. I haven't seen people put adjectives in front of verbs and just completely butcher prepositional phrases, making themselves look silly. Right now, people are misusing child, and I'm not about to explain it here. If you know, you know. And on those lists that I mentioned of AAVE terminology, I've seen wrong definitions be given to words and phrases. So for um one example is the word thirsty is on a list that I've seen and it's defined as when a woman goes natural and it says that the word is a loaded term for black women. But I ain't gonna tell them. The time we're in really reminds me of like a second Harlem Renaissance or black arts movement where there was just so much innovation happening in all aspects of the lives of black people. And so I'm not surprised to see Black people reclaiming our language. I would also argue that reclaiming our language has been something that we've been doing since the time of enslavement. This, our language, is a part of our culture. 
this has meaning. It makes up who we are and it's part of our resistance. When we get protective of our language, we will be told that we're overreacting, making a big deal out of nothing, and that this is how language change happens and languages borrow from each other all the time. But it's like a white person borrows my language while I get persecuted for my language. Like something here isn't adding up. This is not a harmless exchange. Oblivious non-black people can't even begin to list the rough history that our language has. From being born out of great tragedy and resilience to prejudice in the courtroom to linguistic profiling that we face when we're denied jobs, loans, and apartments because we sound black over the phone. We take our ways of speaking with us and time and time again, our lives, our fates end up in the hands of our oppressor. So I want to end this episode by saying that if you are nervous that mainstream America keeps taking parts of our language and you think that we might run out of things to say, rest assured that we will continue to evolve the language. Please don't forget to rate, comment, subscribe to the podcast. And for comments, inquiries, suggestions, and all that, email me at theblacklanguagepodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to throw some links to things that I talked about in the, in the description. Thanks for rocking out with me. I'll talk to you soon. One.